Hi, I'm Steve Thomas. This is Cacophony. Let's dive into some great music. But first, a warning. The composer of this episode's music asks that you really listen. The composer Claude Debussy once said, There's no need for music to make people think. It would be enough if music could make people listen. This episode features one of the great orchestral showstoppers, a piece loved by listeners for sure, at least since the unsuccessful first performances, but also by conductors, orchestras and record labels who want to show off their talents. Simply, it's a great piece to sit and listen to, to let wash over you. If you listened to the last episode on Joby Talbot's Path of Miracles, and of course, I highly recommend it if you haven't yet, we were left gazing out over the Atlantic, contemplating the mysteries of human existence. And this episode finds us in a similar spot, but this time we're contemplating the mysteries of the sea itself. It's La Mer, the Sea, by Claude Debussy. Many composers have been inspired by the sea, depicted its various aspects and moods in music, some of them covered by Cacophony already. Benjamin Britten, Ethel Smythe, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. But I don't think anyone has done it better than Debussy. If Cacophony's tagline is hear more, feel more, be more, Debussy just seems to capture more. Most of us never tire of going to the sea and can look at it for ages because it's always changing, always offering us something new. And this is what Debussy seems to get. There are three distinct movements in La Mer, but Debussy seems to give us an infinite variety of views, of sounds, of moods. First up, I want to use the opportunity to bust a myth that exists, at least in England, that Debussy wrote La Mer in Eastbourne, a seaside holiday town on the south coast. It's like the English want to lay claim to this French masterpiece. He did go there, and whilst on holiday, he corrected the final proofs of La Mer saying to his publisher that the sea there unfurls itself with an utterly British correctness. Debussy's Eastbourne Le Mer might have sounded like a very different piece. I don't know if it's strange or not, but Debussy didn't spend much time actually on the coast while he was writing it. Perhaps this is what gives the piece its added edge, its thoughts and memories and feelings, rather than a mere depiction of what the sea looks and sounds like. In fact, Debussy took inspiration mainly from literature and art. In particular, the famous Japanese woodblock print The Great Wave of Kanagawa by Hokusai Katsushika. He had a copy up on the wall in his Paris apartment and insisted that the picture was used on the front cover of the published sheet music. He even had his name printed in the same position as Hokusai's name on the original artwork. Claude Debussy liked all things Eastern and he had a collection of Japanese artefacts on his desk including a porcelain toad, which he took everywhere he went, said he couldn't compose without having it with him. It probably even went to Eastbourne. The first of the three sections of La Mer is from dawn to midday at sea. The opening is mysterious, perhaps misty, with a hint of distant foghorn before the first big tune emerges. Two images jump out at me when I listen to La Mer, swell and spray. Throughout the piece, you get an almost continual sense of rise and fall, ebb and flow. 
and Debussy's so skilled at writing for orchestra that at every corner he finds a new way to make it come alive. It's not so much that you hear waves crashing, you do. It's that you hear, almost see, can almost feel the spray off the top of those waves. It's like a whole other level of detail and imagination. About four minutes in, the music begins to sound oriental for the first time. Debussy had become obsessed with the sounds of the Indonesian gamelan orchestras that he had heard at the Great Paris Exposition in 1889. He transcribed their music into Western notation and then adopted some of the styles and techniques, even scales, into his own writing. And you hear it here. Debussy was rejecting the Western conventions, trying to get you away from music that developed in the way that, for example, symphonies often do, taking you on a journey from A to B. This is one of the reasons why Debussy called this three symphonic sketches, not a symphony. After exposure to the gamelan, Debussy had described European music as not much more than a barbarous kind of noise, more fit for a travelling circus. There are certainly no barbarous noises in La Mer. Even at its loudest and most raucous, there's a delicate richness, an almost sensual feel to it. Immediately after this moment, Debussy introduces a new section where he divides the cello section into four parts and sneaks in a request in the middle of the score that it be played by 16 cellists. Normally, this kind of stipulation goes on the front page where you list the instruments you need. Most big orchestras only have 10 cellos. I've just been looking at YouTube videos, counting frantically in the moments that whole cello sections are in shot to see if any orchestras do get to 16. The answer, unsurprisingly, is that some do, some don't. It all comes down to money. So in Lucerne, in Switzerland, 16 cellos, in one of the most luxurious orchestras in the world, and in the London Symphony Orchestra, it's just the normal ten. The second movement is a sort of scherzo. It's called Play of the Waves, and it's a faster, lighter interlude. In this movement, both the presence of the splash and spray and the gamelan influence are prominent, with big roles for Celeste or keyed glockenspiel and fluttering woodwinds that seem to catch the sunlight in individual drops of water. Throughout the piece, not just in this movement, Debussy captures the constant shifts of the water, of light, of energy, which translates to the music as a permanent state of movement and momentum. The ending of this movement is particularly beautiful. A sense of quiet, slightly awestruck mystery never seems far away. Lamer's finale is the dialogue between the wind and the sea. 
From the threat of the opening, it's clear that we're in for a torrential storm. There's palpable threat and foreboding, and horns sounding the alarm. And yet, the storm doesn't materialise. It's as if that would be obvious, and Debussy is far too nuanced for that. Instead, we get another kaleidoscope of infinite variety, running the gamut from big seas to eerie calm and back again. Shortly before the end, there are more fanfares on trumpet, which Debussy took out, but most conductors now add back in. There are a couple of theories as to why. He was told they sounded like music by Puccini, that he was either scared of accusations of plagiarism or offended by the comparison. But I prefer the story that they reminded audiences of a popular song of the day and that it had made them laugh, so they had to go. This is not a laugh-out-loud piece. Now the pop tune is forgotten, but Debussy's mastery remains. The piece ends with a blast from winds and brass over low scurrying strings and percussion. It's such a frantic growl in the strings, it's almost hard to discern any individual notes. But we're left with something that feels like triumph, joy, and a sense of awesome power, of the sea, of the orchestra, and of music. Let's have a listen. Click on the link in the podcast show notes to listen to La Mer in full, and then when you're done, tell me what you think. What did it make you feel? What images did it conjure up? You can leave a comment at cacophonyonline.com or a nice easy voice message. Who do you know who you think would enjoy La Mer or Cacophony? Please share Cacophony with them direct and more widely, of course, on social media. If you'd like to help out even more tangibly than that, you can go to our page at coffee.com where you can leave a one-off or regular financial contribution. Any help would be very gratefully received. Now please enjoy La Mer, come back for more next time, and thanks for listening.